Uh, This morning, I want to tell you that Jesus, he came and he's here to set you free. He came to set people free, uh, to deliver people from the powers of darkness in this world. And the most anticipated or eagerly awaited sign of God's kingdom, we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about what it looks like when God's in charge. The most eagerly anticipated sign of the kingdom of God is that of deliverance. In the Old Testament, it's just full. When God is king, we will be delivered from the powers of darkness, delivered from our enemies. And Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, to bring deliverance. So he's here this morning. He offers it to you today. Whether you're a Christian or not, Jesus offers you forgiveness. He offers you deliverance. He offers you freedom. And that's what we're going to be receiving this morning. That's what we're going to be looking at. It feels particularly relevant. Uh, given this morning. Uh, I woke up this morning to receive a message from my family that my uh, three-year-old niece is in hospital with a serious condition and then turn on the news to discover another bomb attack. So whether it's political concerns or personal concerns, I think many of us are aware there's a need for deliverance in this country. There's a need for rescue. There's a need for Jesus to come and intervene in our lives. And the word deliverance... um, in, in many circles within the church uh, and perhaps outside it, has, has come to mean largely deliverance from demonic oppression, deliverance from the powers of the devil. And it includes that, but it, it's not restricted to that. As I mentioned in the Old Testament, they were eagerly awaiting deliverance and they thought primarily in terms of deliverance from their enemies. In the Bible, the people of God are a small nation, insignificant in global terms in one respect. And so they were regularly being uh, afflicted by other nations, regularly being invaded. And their prayer often in the Bible is, God, save us. And the salvation they had in mind was literally get these armies out of here. We want deliverance from them. And right now, there's a need for deliverance, Um, whether it's nationally and politically or globally with the, the rise of nationalism, the threat of North Korea and insane leaders, um, the escalating conflict in Syria, the aspirations of ISIS, or whether it's personally um, the loss of meaning in our society, uh, a lack of and loss of personal identity, uh, rising depression among our teens. One newspaper reported on that a couple of weeks ago. There's a rising, case, rising cases of depression among our young people. And when a nation's youth are no longer feeling optimistic, when a nation's youth are fighting um, aspiration and optimism, Uh, filled with scepticism and fear, you know there's a problem in a country. And like the game of risk, uh, we're aware of a need for rescue and a need for success. I've brought risk with me this morning. I thought as I was thinking about this, when thinking in terms of deliverance, uh, this is where my mind goes straight away. And I'm very excited because my boy, Riley, he's six, he's old enough to play risk now. It's one of my favourite games as a kid. Um, he, I let him win because I'm a dad and I'm nice like that. Um, but I struggle to let him win because he seems to have inherited his mother's arrogance. Uh, <laughs> in that whenever he beats me, he's, he always says to me, Dad, it's funny, I'm six and you're 34 and I beat you. And I don't have the heart to tell him, yes, because I let you. But Riley makes the, um, the classic mistake. I don't know if you've played Risk. I'm going to assume most of us have. But in Risk, of course, you get your territories and then you're, you know, you're given armies to place around the world and you manoeuvre them 
from continent to continent. And, and Riley makes the, um, the classic mistake when we play Risk of spreading himself and his forces just very, very thinly. So rather than, rather than bunching up his forces in, you know, in several territories so that he becomes strong and can dominate the world, instead Riley does this. He, he attacks with an army and then slowly just spreads it out one by one across the world until he's just you know, a mile wide but an inch deep. And uh, it's very easy to just walk through and laugh at him and mock him and tell him, you're a fool, son. But I don't do that because I'm, I'm a nice father and that would be cruel. Um, but like I said, I need to sort out this arrogance he seems to have picked up. Um, so that's one strategy with how to win at risk, a mile wide with an inch deep. Another strategy how to win at risk is the, um, is the cat fat turn tiger approach. You know that one where you, you conquer, or actually you conquer a couple and then you just stay there. You stay there and you get fatter and fatter and fatter and let everybody else fight it out. And then when you're like this tiger, you suddenly break out of your territories and, and destroy the ensuing armies. And the game of risk is useful because there are times in life, like risk, where we feel hemmed in on every side. And for, for most of the Bible, they're in this part of the world. And for most of the, the Bible and God's people, they found themselves surrounded on every side, as I mentioned, by foreign invaders. And found themselves thinking, what are we going to do? How can we find success? We need deliverance. Where will it come from? And there were conflicting visions in Jesus' day, of what was needed to be done to sort out our enemies and to be free. And for this, I'm going to need some volunteers because I want to just, before we get into the Bible, I want to paint the picture of what's going on in Jesus' day and not only why there was a need for deliverance, but what the various attitudes and thoughts were, strategies for success and getting deliverance. So um, let's have... Let's have um, Oh, I'll pick on you three. You got saved. So Z, Amy, and Ross, um, why don't you come up here? And so in Jesus' day, there were many different Jewish groups within society that, that existed and thought that they had a plan. The first was um, the Pharisees. Can I just put this on your head? Is this fit? Let's, hang on. There we go. Oh, it's one of those ideas that worked, sounded good in my head. There we go. Perfect. And your wife would probably say an improvement. Um, in Jesus' day, there were the Pharisees. Can you all see that? And the Pharisees are known by quite a lot of people because Jesus had a lot of interactions with the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees were, were faithful, God-fearing Jews. Uh, the nation of Israel had had a lot of political turmoil in the last few hundred years prior to Jesus' day. And the Pharisees thought, what's needed in order to get deliverance from our enemies, what's needed is that we must become more faithful worshippers of God. We must keep as many of the commandments in the Bible as possible. In fact, they said the reason that life's gone as chaotic as it has done is because we haven't been faithful enough. And so for the Pharisees, their strategy in risk, if you like, if you come up here and pretend like you're this kind of military strategist, their strategy, turn that way, there we go, so we can see, their strategy is try harder, try harder. There was also... Um, there was also these people, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, there you go, Ames. I know you're going to thank me for this when we get home. Um, so I might go for lunch somewhere else today. Um, here we go. There was also the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were another group within Judaism. They were... Um, in cahoots with the ruling class of Jesus' day. Many of the priests and high priests, those in authority in the society, came from the group of people that were known as the Sadducees. And they kind of were in bed with power. 
if you like. They, they thought that the answer to the problems that we've had in the last few hundred years, the answer is to cozy up with power, influence them from the inside, and don't rock the boat too much. So their strategy, if you like, was this one. Um, strike a deal. Get the best deal you can in leaving the EU. Get the best deal that you can in, you know, cozying up to the Romans. That was their approach. If you can cut around the board with Ross as well. So if you stay there. And these, I know, you guys... Look very good, don't worry. And the final kind of group of people that had quite a lot of influence um, were a group known as the Essenes. And the Essenes were um, a monastic group of people, here we go, a monastic group of people who saw a simpler lifestyle. They saw the problems in their society and thought what's needed is that we retreat from the world and we become uh, a pure people. We keep the law, we uh, expect the Holy Spirit, and we await a military leader who's going to come and rescue us. They thought that the answer to the problems in the world was to run away. So these are the three strategies. If you come over here and just go around behind the board for us. These are the three strategies that were popular in Jesus' day. Try harder, strike a deal, or run away. They thought, we've got a lot of problems. We need deliverance. We need rescue. And this is how we're going to do it. And they argued with one another about which is the best way to do it. Alongside, against this, I suppose, in the backdrop of the world as well, were also the military occupying force of the day, the Romans. Martin, you're you know, quite a big, beefy bloke. You can come and be the Romans. Because um, they, they were, there we go, fabulous. <laughs> a much better mask for you. Um, the Romans occupied the land of Israel. They, they, were the mili- they were the bullies of Jesus' day. Those were the ones that were keeping these people um, suppressed. Those were the ones that despite all of their arguing about the strategies that were needed to get deliverance, to find success, they knew that if the Romans wanted to, they could destroy them in a moment. The Romans were the army that was surrounding Israel. They were the oppressors. They were the ones that the people needed deliverance from. And it's into that world that a political insurgent arose named John. And John was, uh, if you like, he was quite similar to, uh, he was an Essene or would have been close to the Essenes in character. He removed himself from society. He went into the desert. He wore some funny clothes and he called people to come to him and to get ready for a coming revolution. John baptized people in water and told them, get ready because there's a leader coming who's going to deliver us from our enemies. Get ready. And then Jesus arose and Jesus did the sorts of things that he did And John said, he's the one we've been waiting for. He's the leader who's going to bring us deliverance from our enemies, who's going to restore our fortunes as a people, who's going to get us again. The presence of God will once again be the pride of the whole earth. We will spread out across the planet. We'll destroy our enemies. That's what John was promising. And when he saw Jesus, that's who he thought was the answer. So in Jesus' day, as in ours, there there was conflicting ideas about what was needed to get deliverance, to get success. I mean, in our day, it's often red versus blue. Do we vote for them? Do we vote for them? They've got ideas about what's best for our country. Or if not, nationally and politically, it's personally. This psychology says this. This book says this. This religion, what's best for me? Where do I get my identity from? We look for. And it's as though sometimes we're gathered around a board of risk and we're playing with our lives thinking, how am I going to get success? I feel hard pressed. I feel beaten down. I know that things aren't how I'd like them to be. What can I do? And we often think the answer is this, or is it that? And we squabble amongst ourselves. 
Now, you guys are going to stay there just a couple more minutes. We're going to read from the Bible and we're going to see what Jesus said. And the, uh, with this as the backdrop, how things went down. So in Luke chapter 7, um, John, like a lot of political insurgents who are politically dangerous, gets thrown into prison. And from prison, he hears about what Jesus, the leader that he thinks is going to destroy the Romans, is doing. And he thinks, well, I don't know what you know about Jesus, but Jesus wasn't taking up arms. He wasn't firing up a rabble to come and overthrow the Romans. So John from prison was thinking, uh, did I get the wrong guy? <laughs> What's going on? And so this is what happens. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus answers in what to us sounds a bit like a riddle. Like He asks you a question. Are you the one who's to come? A, a, a simple yes or no answer would have been fine. But a few chapters later, let's read what Jesus happened next because Jesus is elsewhere and Herod, one of the ruling class, the king in the day, he starts to um, hear about what Jesus is doing and he starts to get concerned. Um, if we go back a slide, or is it not there? Okay, fine. Sorry, so we didn't get it on the slide. I've got it just here. In Luke chapter 13, it says this, At that very hour, some Pharisees came, some Pharisees, there's these guys, Ross, some Pharisees came to Jesus. Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, and this is a great line, you can take this one home. If nothing else, you can use this over Sunday lunch. Go and tell that fox. Go and tell that fox, Jesus said. That's a great thing to call someone, isn't it? Perhaps it's just me. Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. In other words, I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm going to keep doing it until I say I'm done. Go and tell him that. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the heartland. It's the capital city. As, as a city, the name means a place of peace or health. And Jesus, but it's, it's more than just the city. It's what it symbolizes to Jesus and to his friends as being the center of God's dwelling place on the world. And Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're going to let you guys sit down in a moment. One more Bible reading first. <laughs> what Jesus is saying in answer to John's question, and what Jesus says to the Pharisees who come to warn him about Herod, he answers them in, in a code that's understood by them, but might have been missed by us. Essentially, he says, go and tell them the king is on the move. This is that moment in Narnia where the snow starts to melt and the white witch's power starts to decline and the beavers say excitedly, Aslan is on the move. Jesus is saying this, the powers of darkness are fleeing. People are being healed. Read between the lines. The king is on the move. 
And then in Luke chapter 19, last Bible reading. When, uh, where are we going from? We're going to go from verse 33. Yeah. So Jesus tells his disciples, go and find a donkey for me. And as they were untying the donkey, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this, these words that they're singing, many Christians know them, but we know it in the form of the song where they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna literally means save us. It's a cry from the depth of our soul saying, rescue us, help us. It's what Brighton fans have been crying for the last two or three years. Save us. They've been languishing in the lower divisions and vindication and success has come to Brighton. Similar to that, although, you know, when your life's at stake and not just a football game. Um, so a little bit more serious. But they're singing, save us. And in the church, we love this song. Oh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We think it's a very jolly, like, hey. Actually, it's more like the, the New Zealand hacker. It's a war cry. It's a song that when they sing it, it was a declaration. The king is coming. The one who's going to overthrow the Romans, going to kick them out, who's going to restore our pride. The one who's going to deliver us. It's a war cry. And it made the, the, the crowd's blood boil as they started to think, it's coming. The leader is here. Our rescuer, our general, our vindicator's arrived. And in the church, we go, blessed is he who comes in the name. And he's like, no, you've missed the point. This is a war cry. And that's what's going on as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was on the, the riding into Jerusalem committee, I probably would have suggested something other, <clears throat> something other than a donkey. I mean, don donkeys don't really speak of power and success. But Jesus chose a donkey in reference to what David, a king in their past, had done when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And when he gave Solomon his son a donkey and Solomon rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and in reference to an Old Testament prediction or prophecy that says that your king is going to come riding on a donkey. So Jesus is deliberately doing that. He's not tired. He's walking towards Jerusalem. He doesn't suddenly think, ah, oh, I could really do with a rest. Someone get me a donkey. No, he gets a donkey to make a deliberate statement in the way that poppies mean more than just a red flower to us. It's a symbol. It's a statement of intent. Jesus is making a play for the throne as he enters Jerusalem. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that, you, even it, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus, again, weeping, lamenting over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of peace, and he says, if only you, the city of peace, knew the things that make for peace. He's saying the people of peace, the people who are meant to be the hope of the world, they're as bad as everyone else. They don't understand. And Jesus says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will leave not one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is referencing or predicting what happened in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed, 
destroyed the city of Jerusalem and left no stone returned upon another. It was a horrible moment in Jewish history of barbaric brutality. Jesus is predicting that that's going to happen. And then, having arrived in Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. With everything that was going on in the day, there, was, there were storm clouds brewing. A fight was on the horizon. The Jews arguing among themselves about what was best. The Romans threatening them uh, with re- representing for us just the powers of darkness at play in the world. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Hello. Jesus rides into Jerusalem and overturns the table, overturns the tables in the temple, overturns their expectations of deliverance and says, it's going to be done in a different way to the way that you think. Jesus says the kingdom, the mode of deliverance is not military. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. But he made a clear statement saying, I'm the king and I've come to bring deliverance, but not in the way that you expect it. You guys can sit down after all that. Thank you for representing those things very well for us. Should we give them a hand? Jesus enters Jerusalem, confronts the powers of darkness right under their noses, right under the the nose of Rome. He makes a statement that the Romans probably wouldn't have understood in coming into town on a donkey, but everybody else understood it in the way that when Henry Tudor took to the battlefield in the 15th century in Britain with the, the flowers of the House of Lancaster, armies or peoples flocked to him as they knew he was challenging, making a play for the throne. Jesus was doing the same thing here, saying, I've come to bring deliverance. It's like planting an American flag in ISIS territory. That's what Jesus was doing. And what Jesus does is he redefines, he redefines what deliverance looks like. They were awaiting and expecting military victory from their enemies. That's why John was confused in prison. Jesus redefined it. First, Jesus makes a statement. In the things that he, when asked about, are you the king? He says, look, the demons are fleeing. He was making the point, the powers of darkness are your biggest problem. It's not really this nation or that nation. It's the powers of darkness, the unseen hand in this world. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul planted a lot of churches. He writes to a church and he says, we don't wage war against flesh and blood, against people. Our fight isn't with one another. Our fight is with the powers of darkness in this world. Nicky Gumbel, who started the Alpha Course, uh, tells the story of a man who um, went on the Alpha Course. Alpha is a, a series of evenings that gives people a chance to explore the meaning of life and Christian faith. And this man, a lawyer from the city, he was on the Alpha Course and every week for the first few weeks, he would just scoff at what they talked about, scoff at the ideas of Christian belief until Nicky got to the week where he started talking about the demonic and the devil. And at that point, the man sat up and took notice because he said, I'm a lawyer. I see a lot of wickedness and a lot of evil. I know it exists. I know it's real. Paul says that our fight is actually against the powers of darkness. Jesus says a sign that the king is here is that the powers of darkness start to flee. 
You might not see the Romans go, but the powers of darkness, the demonic force in this world react to Jesus. Paul elsewhere in the New Testament says that Jesus is on the cross. He was defeating, undermining, unarming the powers of darkness in this world. So first of all, Jesus says deliverance is from the powers of darkness in this world. The second problem that Jesus comes to deliver us from is the problem of sin. Sin is crouching at the door, looking to destroy people. In this instance, he overthrows the tables in the, in the temple and says, you've made it a den of robbers. This, the city of peace, has become a city or a den of thieves. Herod looks to murder Jesus and destroy his life. Sin, violence, is rampant in Jesus' society in Jesus' day. And Jesus overthrows, overturns, says, I've come to bring deliverance. And third, Jesus says or implies in this story that we do not see as God sees. We judge outwardly, but God sees inwardly. This was John the Baptist's problem, wasn't it? He saw what Jesus was doing outwardly and thought, that doesn't look like the king. Doesn't look like what God would do. And he became fearful. He began to doubt as a result. And it's very easy for us to judge by externals. It's very hard for us to see as God does, of course. But that's what Jesus comes to do. As the king, he delivers us from a worldly way of judging things and enabling us to see differently, to see with the eyes of faith. I was with a friend yesterday who was telling me about their, their church in um, Beirut, where there's a mixture of um, different people groups, among them Arabs who are formerly Muslims. And on one particular Sunday, there was uh, a, a previously Muslim man in the church, in the church community with a, a big uh, dress on or out, what do you call those things? Um, outfit. Huh? Uh, yeah, this that sounds good. Um, and sounds like that app, doesn't it? Bishbosh. Anyway, so there's a man in the congregation with his big kind of baggy clothes on. And in the middle of worship, when people were singing, it went quiet. And he threw up his arms and he shouted, Allah Akbar! And everybody in the church like, threw themselves to the ground in fear. Turns out this man was a Christian, but he didn't know the word hallelujah. So he just used his old language of Allah Akbar, God is great. And turns out it, his baggy clothes were just because he was fat. So he was just a big man and he threw up his hands, Allah Akbar! And everybody in the church hit the deck. Because, of course, it's so easy for us to judge externally. Here was a man who'd been changed by God, who'd come to know Jesus and wanted to declare his praises, but did it in a way that terrified everybody else. The New Testament points out to us in several places that our enemy that we need deliverance from isn't the forces at, world in the, at work in the world all the time. But in fact, as a Christian, you have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Jesus comes to deliver us from all three of those things. He's come to save us from them. I want to read for us um, a story from this book, an excerpt from this book, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. I don't know if you've read it, but it's, um, it's a story that imagines a visit to heaven for a group of ghosts. And it describes what they saw and what they got up to. C.S. Lewis, the, the man who wrote the Narnia stories, and on one particular occasion, he, he describes a scene. He says, I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial. 
but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish, this one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that it'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realise that. But he won't stop. I shall just have to take him home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's just so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I should be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process will be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. The conversation goes on until eventually the man gives him permission to kill this lizard on his shoulder. And the lizard starts chattering and talking to him once again until eventually it's killed. The man squeals and says, Ow, that's me done for, gasped the ghost. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. And then the, the lizard that's been killed turns into this great horse and they ride off into the sunset together. But the image there is a powerful one. The image of something in our lives that comes to destroy us or suppress us or to stop us from living as fruitfully or as fulfilled as we like. And the invitation from God through this angel, shall I kill it? Shall I deliver you from it? Let me take it away. And when we give God permission to come and deliver us, when we invite him and ask him to help make us new, to renew our identity so that we are grounded in him and not grounded in the things of this world, when we stop listening to the lies of the enemy, when we stop giving in to the lies and urges of the flesh, when we stop viewing as the world views, but instead look to God to rescue us and deliver us, we're made much more solid and whole. We're rescued, we're transformed, we're saved, and we're able to live differently. There was a woman in the church um, that my friend leads who's recently become a Christian and been baptized. Again, she comes from a Muslim background um, where she didn't have any Christian friends. And for seven years, she had dreams where from time to time, Jesus or a man that she came to know as Jesus appeared to her and offered her life and hope. 
On one particular occasion, she had a dream that troubled her. So she found a local pastor, my friend, and told him about this dream. She said, I had a dream last night. And in it, there was a stick and a snake wrapped around a stick. And whoever looked at the snake was made better. What's the meaning of this dream? You're a Christian. Tell me. So my friend, the pastor, said, well, it's funny because in John's Gospel, chapter 3, Jesus reminds people of the story of Moses in the Old Testament. In Moses in the Old Testament, there's a moment where he holds up a stick with a snake wrapped around it, and people who are dying of disease look at this snake and are healed. And then Jesus says, I, like that stick, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And my friend told this lady, if you look to Jesus, you can be saved, you can be delivered, you can be set free. She was baptized a couple of months ago, completely non-churched, Muslim background. Jesus broke into her life. He's the one who comes to overturn our lives, who offers us a kingdom that is upside down, not based on the principles of this world, but based on his kingdom values. Kingdoms of freedom, values of freedom, of hope, of of acceptance, of life and joy and peace, as we've been looking at already in this series. That's what Jesus brought then. That's what Jesus brings now. Then he rode on a donkey. In the future, we're told he'll return on a horse to destroy finally the enemies of God. But Jesus is here offering us deliverance. the The sign that God is in charge is the sign of deliverance whether it's deliverance from the forces of darkness in the world, deliverance from fear that grips us and holds us captive and prisoner, deliverance to our own habits that ravage us and ruin our lives. Jesus offers us deliverance. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for sending us the King, the King who's able to deliver us and to set us free. Jesus, we invite you to come and overturn the tables in our lives, overturn our strategies and our ideas and set us free by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and set your people free that they might worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.